Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll be. First Corinthians chapter two. <clears throat> kind of give a second here for everybody to <clears throat> to filter in. Here we are, the end of February. What a beautiful February it has been. If every winter was like this, people would move to Nebraska for the weather, but. All right, let's go ahead and pray and we'll, we'll start. Lord God, it is our blessing to know that you are eternal and unchanging. And it is also our responsibility to know that we are finite beings and we live in a world that is always changing. Help us to think rightly about <clears throat> your word in our lives, and I pray that you would help us through our Sunday school time together along those lines, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 um, is where we will begin, and <clears throat> again, we're, I'm dealing with you know what I'm calling religious influences in America, and it is not my intention simply to do a very brief survey of history, but to remind us, folks, that we are... <clears throat> We are, of course, in a very real sense, as God's children, we are, we are products of the eternal being. And yet, as people of this world, we live in a, we are influenced by the age in which we live. And we come into that age, and it is what we know, and with what we, we are familiar. And then throughout the course of our lives, then there are things that change, and there are people then who embrace those changes or reject those changes, and this constitutes kind of the entire body of history. And so <clears throat> I would just I just have a hope that we'll have some awareness that that we have as a movement, even and we'll gonna just talk some about the Baptists. We we have never been immune from all that is going on in the world. And this morning, let's let's look at the text. First Corinthians two verses one through five, and then I'll I'm gonna return to that at the very end and Pose a couple of questions to you along those lines. <clears throat> First Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that, and the idea there is so that, verse number five, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. <clears throat> and those are powerful words, and we're going to return to them at the end, but this morning I want to begin talking to us about something that will occupy probably the next three Sundays in one way or another. And this is one of the most impactful events in American history, what we call the Second Great Awakening. 
the second great awakening. The first great awakening had a tremendous impact and we're going to get oriented just by kind of laying them a little bit side by side. And there are no doubt influences of the first great awakening that remain and probably the most visible and tangible of those results are some of the music that we still sing. But the impact of the second great awakening is felt by churches to this very day. And in fact, you may not be thinking about this or may not have ever thought about it in this way. But some of the very things that we are discussing in the modern church and, and traditionalism versus contemporary or anything that would be like that, or even some of the things that very traditional churches like ours would do, these have their roots not really in the Bible, but they have their roots in America's Second Great Awakening. And so that's the, this morning we're just going to try and get oriented around some of those things. So if I could just begin by kind of walking back a little bit through America's first great awakening. And while America was experiencing what we call our first great awakening, God was doing a similar work in England called the evangelical revival of that time. The, 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 the period of time for the first great awakening is approximately 1730 to 1760, right? I hope you understand they don't have switches, they don't turn on and they don't turn off like that. Um, The First Great Awakening began in New England, and then it spread east and south. It had its greatest impact on the established churches, because established churches were really all that there were, or almost all that there were. And so when this revival hit, it hit the established congregational churches, and when it went to the south, the established Anglican churches. Um, One of, the, one of the aspects of that revival, and of course God was saving people and God was doing the spiritual work, and one of the impacts of that revival was for the first time uh, we began to question the legitimacy of a professional clergy, so to speak, men who went to college specifically to be ministers, who followed the trajectory of their denomination and who then, by virtue of that authority and position, were almost unimpeachable in, in anything that they did or said, mostly what they said. I mean, they, you know, sinful conduct was something else. Uh, the First Great Awakening was, and part of this is by nature of the churches in which it originated, it was very heavily oriented around Calvinism, and it is particularly oriented around human inability. And if you have any familiarity, of course, with the, with the tulip uh, that we used to describe it, we, that's, that's one of it, In, inability, right? That, that human beings do not have the wherewithal to come to faith in Christ apart from the prompting and the work of God. And, of course, within Calvinist theology, That is going to be a work that God does only upon the elect. And again, in our world, we tend to to have the entire conversation around the issue of election. But I'm I'm just trying to beat this because it is such an important part. But election is, to these people, only a peripheral issue. It is not the main issue. Human ability becomes the argument, the controversy. What can human beings do? 
what is their role? <clears throat> to whatever extent there was an emotional dimension to the First Great Awakening, the leaders of it worked very hard to squash it. Not that they were opposed to emotion, but they were very suspicious of simply emotional outbursts being equated with spiritual activity. And Jonathan Edwards, this is where God used the mind of Jonathan Edwards, who wrote extensively on what he called the distinguishing characteristics of a true work of God. Um, How do you know? Right? If somebody's just running around singing and smiling and laughing or whatever other, how do you know if it's a true work of God? And in its outcome, we see in its legacy, we see tremendous music. Lots of people were saved. Um, some new colleges were established with religious orientation. And so that was the first great awakening. The second great awakening comes about a hundred years later, and its heydays are going to be the 1820s through the 1840s. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to make the argument that it primarily impacts three regions. I mean, the Second Great Awakening has a huge influence, but it is, it is a little more regional than the First Great Awakening. It had relatively little impact on what were the established churches primarily because it was happening in places where there were no established churches. Most of the Second Great Awakening occurs in what was at that time the the unsettled West. And this awakening is primarily Baptist and Methodist in its denominational influence. The First Great Awakening began among Congregationalists, and it proved very divisive among the Congregationalists. This awakening, the Second Great Awakening, became, was heavily involved in the Methodists and the Baptists, and it was during this period of time that the Methodists and the Baptists really began to explode in their numerical influence Um, in America. The Second Great Awakening was very democratic in its nature. In other words, if we could put it this way, or I would put it this way, it is very American in its overall outlook. And it completely and totally rejects the notion of a professional clergy we talked, I talked a little bit about that last week. I read a quote to you from Lorenzo Dow. <clears throat> and so if a man made the proclamation that God had called him into ministry, right? Under the old line, folks, right? Under the old line, a man would come to whatever decision he would make about entering the ministry. God called me. I want to go into ministry. Okay. Then then here's the trajectory, right? You should get college and then to whatever extent seminary, which in the old days you went to college like you would go to college today, kind of a liberal arts degree or history or something like that, and then you would go off for a more specialized training. That's what seminary technically is, more specialized training. You learn the languages, Hebrew and Greek, if you do not know them. 
and, <clears throat> and you deal with the theological issues. And then, then you are licensed by your denomination, and then you intern for a while. And then you can find a pulpit, and then you are ordained. And under the, and under the new movement, right, we just kind of rejected all of that. God called me to preach, and it's not your place to tell me whether or not I should or shouldn't. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Folks, does that sound familiar at all to us? Have any, I, I know, and I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I know, because I know that some of you come from the same background that I do, where, where this idea of a professional clergy and of that kind of mentality was ridiculed. That all you needed was to call a God in your life, and all you needed was the power of God in your life, and away you went, and nobody, it was nobody's business but yours. That's, that's second great awakening. That is American democracy bringing its mentality to American religious practice. One historian has called this the Americanization of religion. <clears throat> because it so thoroughly broke with the English view of religion. And again, we talked about that last week. And whereas the First Great Awakening was primarily Calvinistic in its orientation, God is doing a work upon people who have no natural ability. The Second Great Awakening is primarily Arminian in its orientation. You can do anything. You can do anything. Anything that the Bible tells you to do, you can do. Just, just do it. Just do it. It's up to you. The power resides with you. <clears throat> and this will, one of the consequences of this, and this is one of the places that we will go, one of the, one of the consequences of this is that <clears throat> when you bring that mentality to the ministry, Right? It lends itself to a very technique-based methodology that, that we're, going to, we're going to develop a variety of steps that we will follow. And if you follow the steps, you will get the result because we can do anything. We can do anything. In addition to people being saved and, and what appears to be a genuine work of God among people, there are, again, tremendous emotional outbursts. Um, and one of the differences with the Second Great Awakening is that these tend to be more, much more tolerated by those who are viewed as leaders. And so... All right, so, so, so those, that's just kind of a comparison, right? Side by side. We experienced two within a couple hundred years, uh, within a hundred years, 1730s, 1830s, two revivals spread through America. <clears throat> okay. Second Great Awakening. Existed in, in its largest form in three distinct regions. And, and again, you know, I kind of talked about this last week, but a, a little bit of American history the British had not allowed the colonists to expand into the West, to settle the West. So the Appalachian Mountains kind of became the border, the western border of the country. And when the Revolutionary War ended, 
then that territory became open and people began to flood into that part of the world to explore it and to settle it. And it was into that part of the world or into that part of the country that the Second Great Awakening really began to get its traction. So one of the main regions was the region of Kentucky and Tennessee. So if, if you, you know, again, as, as Midwesterners, we don't necessarily think of that as the West, but it was the West, and it was pretty much unsettled. Um, <clears throat> this revival began, again, you know, they're not switches. They don't, you know, follow exact formulas, but it began around 1800. A man by the name of James McGready, M-C-G-R-E-A-D-Y, pastored three churches in Kentucky, uh, an area that was very rural, very primitive, and there was much in the way of lawlessness and wickedness, as you might imagine. And <clears throat> McGreedy organized something, again, that I'm guessing you have some familiarity with. McGreedy organized a camp meeting. A camp meeting. And <clears throat> he assembled about four or 500 people at this camp meeting. And on the last day of the camp meeting, according to McGreedy, a revival broke out. And here's what he said. The floor was soon covered with the slain. Their screams for mercy pierced the heavens. And on the basis of that meeting, another was soon planned, and they had 8,000 people come to this camp meeting. And again, McGreedy says, the power of God seemed to shake the whole assembly. Towards the close of the sermon, the cries of the distressed arose almost as loud as his voice. After the congregation was dismissed, the solemnity increased till the greater part of the multitude seemed engaged in the most solemn manner. No person seemed to wish to go home. Hunger and sleep seemed to affect nobody. Eternal things were the vast concern. Here, awakening and converting work was to be found in every part of the multitude and even some things strangely and wonderfully new to me. So this is some of what is going on in western Kentucky and Tennessee. <clears throat> Another place <clears throat> where there is a tremendous outpouring of the revival is a place called Cane Ridge, Kentucky. This is 1801. And, and the Cane Ridge camp meeting, folks, is one of the most famous Christian events of American history. The estimates are, and it's a broad range, but the estimates are that somewhere between 10,000 and 25,000 people attended the Cane Ridge meeting. Whatever the actual number is, folks, at that point in time, 1801, the population of Lexington, Kentucky was 1,800. So this is a massive assembly of people. And this was something that occurred under the leadership of a man by the name of Barton Stone. And Barton Stone was a Presbyterian. And one of the things that, that comes out of the Second Great Awakening that will go on later to be, become very controversial after the Second Great Awakening is that although there are differences in denominations, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Many of the men who are most associated with these revivals are not divisive about their denominational 
distinctions. Um, so I'm a Presbyterian, but I'm not trying to confine this meeting to only Presbyterians. Everybody can come. And I'm, not a, I'm a Presbyterian, but I'm going to let other people besides Presbyterians speak. So there was very much a spirit of cooperation uh, among these people. <clears throat> so <clears throat> here's one of the testimonies. Invitations had been sent by the Presbyterians to Methodists and Baptist preachers from afar and near. And Stone was delighted that all appeared cordially united in it. They were of one mind and soul. The salvation of sinners was one object. We all engaged in singing the same songs, all united in prayer, all preached the same things. So there is very much a cooperative spirit at this Cane Ridge revival. One man who attended said, the noise was like the roaring of Niagara. The vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. I counted seven ministers, all preaching at one time, some on stumps, others on wagons, some of the people were singing, others praying, some crying for mercy. A peculiarly strange sensation came over me. My heart beat tumultuously. My knees trembled. My lips quivered. And I felt as though I must fall to the ground. So there are tremendous physical manifestations that people are experiencing as part of the revival. Some of the wildest expressions of emotion happen at Cane Ridge. Hysterical laughter people falling into trances. So we have parts of Tennessee and Kentucky. We have Cane Ridge, Kentucky. The revival actually made inroads up into New England. And it begins to take kind of an interact, I don't want to say twist, but here is where some controversy really begins to break out. One of the leaders of the revival in New England was Timothy Dwight. And Timothy Dwight was Jonathan Edwards' grandson. But unlike his grandfather, and I've made mention of this, folks, and I do it not to in any way be critical of Jonathan Edwards, but to try and demonstrate the extreme views to which some men took this idea of human inability. Edwards was inclined to read his sermon manuscripts like this. And the goal was not to be rude, and the goal was not to be insulting. The goal was for everybody to remember that if anything was going to happen when Edwards was preaching... It could never be credited to Jonathan Edwards, but only to God. This again, folks, this goes back to the mindset of the first great awakening. It is not a mindset shared by very many people in the second great awakening. The mindset being, we can fend for ourselves politically, we can fend for ourselves economically, we can feed ourselves, and we can most certainly take care of our religious needs on our own. Not that we don't need God, 
but we don't need a professional clergy to help us. And we don't need all of that established stuff to help us. We can take care of this. And so Timothy Dwight was among those, and this is something, and we'll get to this in two weeks, when we talk about Charles Grandison Finney. The the mentality begins to shift now that revivals are something that we can create, that we can create, that Westwood Heights Baptist Church, if we wanted a revival, could make one. We could have one. Why don't we have a revival? Because we don't want one badly enough. That, that there are things that we could do that would bring about a revival. And again, folks, to, to fast forward, that mentality has carried over into much of the traditional fundamental Baptist world. How many, right? I'm, not, I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm not trying to be hurtful. I'm not trying to cause trouble. But how many times in your Christian history have you been in a church where where they've invited somebody in to have a revival meeting. We're going to have a revival meeting. As if all all that it takes is putting a date on a calendar and doing the right things and we'll have one. But in the early 1800s, this was not only believed, but it was apparently possible we could have one. We could make one. So when this kind of mentality goes up and begins to brush up into some of the more established churches, unlike the West, it began to encounter a little more pushback and a little more resistance. Those those in established denominations, even if they had been favorably impacted by the first Great Awakening, were not inclined to, to give up that much ground, so to speak. And so the con- it became very controversial <clears throat> uh, up in that part of the world. A man by the name of Lyman Beecher, who pastored in Connecticut and Massachusetts and one of, one of America's most prominent uh, ministers, criticized the emotionalism of these Western revivals, um, arguing that they were obviously not the work of God. Uh, Lyman Beecher is probably more famous for his daughter, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, which when Harriet Beecher Stowe met Abraham Lincoln, he said, so you're the little girl that wrote the book that started the Civil War. So, I mean, you get an idea of how much influence Uncle Tom's cabin had. Um, On the other hand, Lyman Beecher, who was critical of the emotionalism of some of the revivals, was brought up on charges by his own denomination, the Presbyterians, because he was tolerant of, and I'm going to give you the probably for the first time in my Sunday school lesson, right, the, the, the key phrase that, we, that we're going to use, and that are the new measures, the new measures. And again, Charles Grandison Finney will be the man who argues for the new measures of revival. And Finney has just impacted Baptist fundamentalism in more ways than I could recount right now. 
Just the very thought, folks. All right, and I'm gonna I'm gonna weigh in my my pastoral skepticism. Okay, and we're getting ready, right? The Second Great Awakening through the early days of the 20th century. Some of the biggest influences in American religion are these revivals and its, its successor, what is known as mass evangelism. Men like D.L. Moody and men like Billy Sunday and men like R.A. Torrey and ultimately men like Billy Graham. Men who conduct these massive evangelistic campaigns. Now, the Bible does say do, there, there is an evangelist, and these are the kind of things that evangelists do. One of the very real questions is <clears throat> that has to be asked, folks, is what happens to the local churches when all of this is going on? And a man like Finney tended to be very critical of local churches. Believing in part that he was obligated to do what he did because churches had failed to do what they were supposed to do. But I would point out that God has never had a program besides the church. That doesn't make every church right or successful. I would just, I'm going to argue this, that there is... No program that God has besides the church. This is his chosen vehicle. But anyway, Lyman Beecher was favorable towards some of these new measures, holding revival meetings, holding camp meetings, mass evangelism, so Kentucky, which is going to be McGreedy and Stone and their area, Kentucky, Tennessee is one region, New England, up into the New England area, and then third, the third major region is going to be western New York. And <clears throat> I've already talked about him. The leading figure here <clears throat> is Charles G. Finney. And we're going, to, we're going to talk, we're going to take a week and talk about Finney, and we're going to take next week and we're going to talk about not, a, not an area that Finney created, but an area in which Finney worked that is known historically as the Burned Over District, Western New York. The scene of dozens of revival meetings, dozens of revivals, and also the birthplace of <laughs> just an unbelievable number of cults and wackadoodle Christian movements. Come right out of this. Come right out of Western New York, folks. Come right out of Western New York. That particular point in time. So, so those are so, right? So, as in every revival, God is doing something, and we and we don't want to take that away. God is saving souls. God is encouraging the saints. God is working towards righteousness. There is no doubt about that. But those revivals don't just happen in a vacuum. They happen in a culture of a group of people and of the influences that they are experiencing and Americans were spreading their democratic wings. So, right, so there are lots of things that are 
visible legacies to the Second Great Awakening. Um, <clears throat> it is going to become very divisive among some of the denominations, actually among most of the denominations. Um, <clears throat> Presbyterians will split over whether new measures are acceptable or not. The Baptists will fragment in so many ways that it's almost impossible to count. And the Baptists will, and, and again, we'll talk about Baptists because they will broadly divide over Calvinism and Arminianism, and then they will divide further and divide further and divide further and divide further. The Second Great Awakening has a tremendous impact upon the way church services are conducted, the formality of established churches and established clergy mentality gives way to informality. <clears throat> one of the things, folks, one of the things that, that comes out of the Second Great Awakening is an insistence among some of these revivalists to preach extemporaneously without notes. That right, you just get up and you just get you just get your message from God, and you get up and you give and you give God's message, and that's how you're supposed to preach. There's still a tremendous impact on that, right? There, there, there are still people who think that that's the way you ought to preach. That you just ought to let the Spirit lead. And and you know, one of the note observations I'd make about that is, folks, if I was a revival. Right, I mean, you know, here's right. I mean, it's it's a little bit like the difference between being an emergency room doctor and a right and a and a physician in private practice. Right, it's it's to some extent it's about the clientele. If I traveled from place to place and every week I preached to a good different group of people, I could probably get away with six sermons, because every week my audience changes. But I preach to the same audience every week. So, I think that if I preach the same six sermons to you, that at some point in time, somebody would go, didn't he just preach that? And I go, well, you know, I'm just going to preach what the, what the Lord has for me. Um, this carries over, by the way, and I've talked to, to us, to the guys, you know, with prayers. There's, there's nothing wrong with making some notes to yourself about what you want to ask the Lord for. Um, but this this idea that that anything prepared is somehow offensive to the Lord that goes back, folks, to the Great Awakening and to the, some of these new measures that that anything prepared like that smacks too much of tradition and too much of the established church and not enough room for the Spirit of God. There is, of course, much less demand for trained clergy and. I made mention last week of Nathan Hatch's book, The Democratization of American Christianity. He will talk on at least one occasion about somebody who got saved one night and was preaching the next day. And, you know, nobody should take exception to that or take offense to that. There will be much more reliance on human agency and technique-based evangelistic methods. And by that I mean things like public invitations, altar calls, high-pressure tactics, 
This was what I was taught, folks, as a young man preparing for ministry in college. The invitation begins with the handshake at the door. So that everything that was done, everything that was done in a public service, did you know this? Everything that was done in a public service was designed to facilitate your response at the end of the service. I tell you to stand, you stand. I tell you to sit, you sit. I tell you to stand again. Stand again, see you're used to following me, you're used to doing what you're told, now come forward. And if you think, that's nuts. Well, I'm just going to take you back to 1830 America. That's where it started. That's where it started. Increasingly, the belief was that revivals can be created by men if they will use the proper tactics. It will have a tremendous impact. So, right, it will be some of the legacy of the Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening. It will be divisive among denominations. It will ultimately, they will ultimately split. And for all the negative things that I've said about Finney, and I will not say many nice things about Charles Grandison Finney, Charles Grandison Finney was a man in the middle. He was not as conservative as some of his critics, and he would not go to the emotional extremes that others would go. He was very much a man in the middle of this world. It will impact the way church services are conducted. It will have a tremendous impact on society. <clears throat> Second Great Awakening granted great liberties to women. Charles G. Finney let women preach. And he becomes, ultimately he becomes active in and then ultimately the president of Oberlin College in Ohio, the first college in America to grant blacks, women, and white men equal status and standing academically. The Second Great Awakening will give rise to the temperance movement. Prohibition, folks, will be a direct result of the Second Great Awakening. So that, right, I'm not here, I promise you, I'm not here advocating for the beverage use of alcohol. I am saying, if you believe that the beverage use of alcohol is unbiblical, you've got to do some reading on the Second Great Awakening to understand how the temperance movement came to be. It didn't exist in Christianity until about 1830. It just didn't exist. Nobody found it in the Bible. Nobody taught it in the Bible. Nobody taught it as a denomination until the 1830s. It started somewhere. And as John Adams said, facts are stubborn things. We, we can't just pretend that it had always been that way. It hadn't always been that way. The abolitionist movement and all that comes of that, one of the great divisions in the Baptists will be over the issue of slavery. And in 1845, the Southern Baptists will form their sympathetic to slavery association, the Southern Baptist Convention. So the social impact of the great, Second Great Awakening is tremendous. <clears throat> It will also continue to expand the belief that America should look westward for its expansion. And 
America will develop this idea of manifest destiny, that it is clearly the will of God that we are a nation from sea to shining sea. And that goes back to the Great Awakening. It will also become the seedbed of a host of cults and communities. Let me just give you a couple of, a few of them. The Mormons come right out of the Second Great Awakening. The Jehovah's Witnesses come shortly after that. They're, they come out of the mass evangelism movement. Seventh-day Adventists. A lot of these movements that will come out of the Second Great Awakening are what are known as Reformation movements. Like the Mormons and the Seventh-day Adventists, one of their principal tenets will be nobody had been doing it right, everybody had drifted away from the truth, and we're here to recover it. Shakers. The Oneida community. The Shakers, of course, you know, are probably the most famous, and, and they, they practice basic human celibacy, which is kind of signing your own death warrant because religions have historically relied upon their children to be their primary evangelistic outreach. Um, <clears throat> in contradistinction to that, the Oneida community, which practiced complex marriage, all the members were married to each other with full conjugal rights, almost full conjugal rights. A variety of holiness movements, a variety of restoration movements, We'll talk about the Fox Sisters, the spiritualist movement, right? The Ouija board kind of mentality. That comes right, that comes right out of here. Comes right out of this time. Right out of, right out of this, right out of Western New York, folks. I mean, they're, they're just all right there basically in Western New York. I think the witnesses actually began in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, right? <clears throat> and to go back to our text this morning, I'm going to wind this down. Because fundamental to the second great awakening and all of those kind of questions really hinges upon how you answer this question. I want to go back and take a minute and read the text again. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now here's the question. To what extent, and I'm just going to confine it to the, to the, to the preacher, to what extent does the preacher contribute to the effectiveness of the preaching? To what extent does the preacher contribute to the effectiveness of the preaching? To give you a very, right, just to give you a, something that can be measured. And to give you an illustration, supposing that I took Supposing that I could find, which you cannot find, all right? This is just a goofy illustration. But supposing that I could find 10 Bible verses that said you should give a dollar a week to the local church, 10 Bible verses. And so I stood up and I said, here are 10 Bible verses. Here's verse 1, you should give a dollar. Here's verse 2, 
you should give a dollar. Here's verse 3, you should give a dollar. All through 10 verses, God says 10 times you should give a dollar to the local church. That's one methodology. Now suppose I become much more theatrical in my presentation. And I just put my Bible down, let's say. And I go, God says you ought to get $10 a week. And maybe I run around a little bit, and maybe I yell, and maybe I wave my hanky. Maybe I stand on the pulpit. Because, you know, Nehemiah stood on the pulpit of wood. Maybe I ran back and forth a little bit. But at the end, I said, you should give a dollar a week to the church because the Lord said, which delivery is going to produce more result? And I don't know how you would answer that question. But if you answered that question that the guy who ran around and jumped on the pulpit, you would be a very much in line with Second Great Awakening sympathies. Because that's the kind of thing that they believed. That's what Jonathan Edwards did not believe. Jonathan Edwards believed that people got saved because God worked to save them, not because he presented the gospel in such a fabulous fashion that they would respond. Charles Finney believed that it was entirely up to him to preach and, if necessary, pressure people into responding because that was the way that it was supposed to be done. And part of his criticism of churches was that they had failed in that they were, they were not enough like that. Not every church, but many of them were not enough like that. And so this era and aura of revivalism came. And <clears throat> folks... We're still, we're still living with the, we're still answering that question. Let me put it that way. We are still answering that question. And I'm just going to close with this. If you don't believe that we're not still answering that question, do some sincere research on the contemporary church music philosophy. What moves people? What gets them to do what God wants them to do? So it's a huge issue. And it's, it's not an issue that's ever gone away. Not, not since we began to explore it in earnest in the 1830s. Now we're 200 years in. We're still talking about it. And it's huge. Okay, I'm going to stop there. God, stop there. I'm